We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Men from Moto. Digital strategies with Travis Sowers and David Seville. Intellect, vast, cool, and unsympathetic. Broadcast to the world with the uncanny help of Mana Deprived and FaceToFaceGames.com. Greetings, people of Earth. We're the men from Moto, and you're listening to episode 103, Gender Estimating Crisis. My name is David Seville, and I have Travis Sowers on the line with me again this week. How are you, sir? I am Juntastic. How about you, David? I am ready to enter the Dunderdome. So many puns. So many Jund puns. Uh, yes, really um, Junding the gun on this one? That's a terrible one. That was, yeah, B minus. That's the worst one I've come up with today. Uh, but uh, but seriously, how how are you this week? How was your how was your stream this week? Good. It's it's been a good week. I've had fun kind of stepping into standard, playing with some you know metagame decks, brewed my own deck, and had some fun with that. And I think I finally settled on on what I want to start playing. Uh, and then again, the big push is going to come for me not next week, but the week after when we get back from vacation. And that's when I'm really going to buckle down and uh, and and begin. That mythic grind, uh, because I would very much like to be in the top nine. Would not, and you say top nine because Alexander Hain is number one currently. Yes, and we we can have a little chat about Alexander Hain when you're ready. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, this week is is all about standard, um, as it will be for the next couple until your your standard kind of run is over. Um, I did have a nice little couple of drafts this week, so I'm, I'm pretty happy with the, with limited in, in general. Um, can I just say, like, when it comes to limited, the difference between this set and Guilds of Ravnica has been incredible so far. I don't know what is different about it. Maybe it's the fact that there's mana sinks. Maybe it's the fact that it, it feels like you can play three colors a little, like, safer because there's no Boros Menace. But the format has felt really fun to me so far. Um, easily the most fun I've had since Dominaria came out, I would say. Yeah, it, it's amazing how it can still be limited in the sense that there's only the, the, the five guilds that you can play. So it's kind of limiting your color pairs. But I really think it's it's missing Boros. And it wasn't just that Boros was aggressive. It was. It's that it was snowball-y. So it's like, even if you managed to recover from a good start from a Boros deck, like, you know, they still had a 5-5 five, five Hawk left over at the end of it. And you're like, well, that's just going to kill me. Um, whereas yeah, like exactly Rakdos does not do that. So I, I've enjoyed it too. Haven't played it in a week, but I have fond memories. Yeah. You'll come back to it in a month and then, and then it'll be limited all the time. We'll switch back to a limited podcast podcast and it'll be great. So yeah, well the next set has Nicol Bolas in it. So you never know what I'm going to do. That's true. So your journey on the mythic ladder to the top nine. And again, we say top nine because Alexander Hain is pretty locked in right now at number one. And since he's on the, uh, the MPL professional circuit, one would assume that his invite would become an at-large invite, which would go to the next person in line. We don't know that for sure, I don't think. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's talk about Alexander Hain for a little bit. Sure. So we got to start with the first time I met Alex. Uh, he is a super nice guy, by the way, and has always taken the time to like have a conversation with me, chat with me, wave at me, because he's good friends with KYT. And KYT is my buddy, so Alex has always been very kind to me when there was really no reason for him to 
to do so other than just he's a good guy. So like that, that immediately made me like him. But I remember the first time I met him was at GP Providence. Uh, that's where KYT, uh, Josh Frankel and I were on a team and Alex was on a team with John Stern and somebody else. I'll be darned if I can remember who it was. Uh, but we were between rounds and I was kind of just hanging out with Josh and KYT and they were hanging out with Alex and KYT introduced me. And then I saw Alex flip a coin with another player, lose the flip, and then hand that person $20. And I thought, and this is right after he'd won Pro Tour Avison Restored. And I was like, this, this kid is an idiot. Because like, you got to understand, he's very young. And I was like, he's just betting $20 on coin flips. He just won a bunch of money at a Pro Tour. And he has no idea what he's doing. I can't believe that that this is 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 considered good in magic and i was like i have to talk to him about this so i was like why did you do that and he said i'm i'm about to go play a winning in and i can't afford to tilt if i can be okay losing 20 dollars on a coin flip then i can probably not tilt on that winning in and win a lot more than 20 dollars so it's worth it to me to flip it to just get that out of my system and i was like oh my god he's not an idiot he's a genius he's so smart and like I've had the pleasure of interacting with him, and I think we even went out to lunch once. And every time I've had the chance to talk to him for more than five minutes, I've gotten better at magic. He's just a, a brilliant card player. And I had somebody come into the chat today and, and say, well, Alex has got top one with Mono Blue Tempo, so obviously you should try that. And I'm like, Alex could have top one with a ham sandwich. Like, the, the deck is good, sure, but it, it's not the best deck just because he's winning with it. It's probably a very good choice. Uh, but, like, a, a, again, what if, like, <laughs> th this guy could take any of these decks and be number one with them. Um, so, like, uh, my estimation, Alex is, is, I think, the best Magic player that is currently playing right now. And I think his record so far at maintaining that number one spot uh, certainly calls for it. And like I've seen him do this in limited formats, constructed formats, uh, when we were at face to face games, shout out to face to face games in Montreal, um, we did a um new Phyrexia draft and he just wrecked everybody. It's like th this kid knows how to play magic. So yeah, that's why I'm saying I'm gunning for top nine, because I expect Alex will still be number one, and that's okay. Have you had the opportunity to check out his streams at all? Probably not, because I think he streams during the day, right? Yeah, he streams exactly when I'm streaming. I did play him once, and I won a game. So, like, I t while I was messing around with my Jun deck. So, like, I'll I'll take that as a win. Um, but I do have a favorable mono-blue tempo matchup with Jun, by the by. But not against Alex. Not not against Alex. It's kind of amazing what, like, a really good pilot of a deck can do. Mm -hmm. um, and and learning from the experts. So I can't watch his streams either because he streams while I'm working, but I have every intention this weekend of going back and looking at some replays um, because I want to play Mono Blue in the ladder. I, I have it built from best of three, and I don't really have a bunch of other decks played or ready for best of three, so I want to give it a try. And, and you know, just watching his interactions and the way he that he describes things I think will be useful. So um, I think my first memory of Alex... I never met Alexander Hain, but I think... I think I watched replays of his Pro Tour win when I was first getting into Magic because as a keener, you know, like anytime I pick up a new game, I'm going to go to YouTube and and see all of the, you know, the Let's Play videos and the strategy videos and things like that. And I'm fairly certain that I, I watched that top eight on YouTube, you know, months after it happened. 
And, um, and I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, like, you know, this guy's Canadian and is doing this kind of stuff, you know, maybe I can get on the scene. And then, you know, I, I didn't, but that's, that's another story. You're entirely. on the scene right now, David, you're an MTG content producer. I am, I am on the internet. That's right. You're a minor internet celebrity. I, like a D celebrity? Am I like a, like a, like a Rustwing Falcon type celebrity here? Or am I like a, like a C minus celebrity? I'd say you're a naturalized. In, in a lot of formats recently, I want you in the DAG. Uh, maybe in the sideboard. Yeah, maybe in the sideboard, maybe main DAG. Yeah, it's like, hey, we, we need that Dave guy. He's tall and he's skinny. Can he? Can you fit back here behind the shelf and <laughs> reach down and pick this thing up? That's what I am. I'm, I'm a good sideboard card. I'll give you a tip for your mono blue. Just hold a blue up the whole game. Just like take one of your islands and set it to the side and don't do anything with it and you'll win. But like, I think the reason I won a lot against mono blue is people would tap out and you can't tap out with that deck because I can kill your stuff. Yeah, it's almost like put a card face down on top of an island. Mm -hmm. What what format was that in where you would just set that card, set a, a land aside? Oh, it was with Icy Manipulator, where if I was playing it in paper, I would just take the Icy Manipulator and put a land on top of it beside and just never move it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I know how this card works, opponent. All right, so carrying on with standard, I haven't had a ton of time to play best of three standard i did get to play a bunch of best of one i was running uh mono white actually mm -hmm. um it started off as, as red white heroics and then changed to mono white to play unbreakable formation instead i have had a surprisingly good win rate with the deck uh so far between mono red and red or sorry mono white and red white um i have around a 65 percent best of one win rate i just haven't played enough to rank up that well so um, hovering around like gold one or something like that, maybe just under gold one. Um, and it's actually going quite well for me so far. So a lot of those wins actually came before the, the rotation over. Uh, so I was hanging out in the platinum tiers before, but, um, the decks treated me quite well. Best of one certainly was a cesspool of mono red and turbo fog until about the last week. And now it feels like the, the format has diversified either because those decks have graduated and I have not. Um, or the pool has just become a little bit deeper with the uh, with the best of one meta. Yeah. Best of three, though, is a complete unknown to me, so I'm going to have to rely on you. What uh, what kind of things are you seeing in best of three at, uh, I guess you're at diamond level this week? Yeah, so I, I went through platinum pretty quick, um, actually just playing my Naya tokens list from last season. I made one swap. I took out Rootbound Crag and put in the Stomping Ground, and then just played it and got through platinum relatively quickly, but my goal wasn't necessarily to rank up as fast as I could. Otherwise, I think I would have just gotten a mono red deck and done it in best of one. I, I wanted to kind of understand standard and the best of, of three format and see what was out there in the metagame. So once I hit diamond, I kind of went on a journey of playing different decks, I even brewed my own deck and played that and tweaked it and had a really good time with that. And I, I think I actually did build something that's, that's like viable and interesting and could be a part of the mana mana meta if people want to get involved with it on, um, but there, there is something holding it back, which I think we'll get into, but most of what I bumped into in best of three, there was not a lot of mono red, although there was some, there was not a lot of Nexus of fate decks, although there was some, there's a lot of mono blue, and I think a lot of that is because Alex has had some success with the deck. Uh, there was a lot of like Esper strategies, 
whether it was counting on the hero of Precinct 1 um, or just trying to do control stuff with Teferi. The gate deck is certainly has a presence there, um, and it, it's looking to do some really interesting things. And there's a basically a mono-white deck splashing for negates out of the sideboard that I've bumped into a couple times. And Drake's seemed, at least today, to be making its presence felt again. Um, so basically just is it Drake's, but they're using Terramander um, as basically an, an extra copy of, of a Drake where they can play it early and chip in for some damage or, you know, maybe block a 2-1, whatever they need to do with it. And then later it just becomes, you know, a 2-mana 5-5. Five five. Um, yeah, I really want to I really want to try that deck. 12 Drake interests me quite a bit. I was playing um, the mono, or not the mono red, the, uh, the blue red Phoenix with Drake's. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of like featuring Drake's. And that's kind of fallen off to the to the wayside here but that the terramander version looks quite interesting to me i think this this standard environment is a really good example to show hearthstone players why there is a difference between best of one and best of three and why it matters to what you know either a competitive format or how a deck can be so oppressive in best of one and then just fall apart entirely in best of three so Mm -hmm. mono red and and turbo fog there the nexus fog are, are great examples of that so mono red just entirely folds to sideboards that have any kind of life gain or blockers designed to slow mono red down. Mm -hmm. And and mono red can't really change its game as much as all of the other decks can change their game to match mono red. So if I'm playing a mono red deck and my opponent, I know my opponent's siding in life gain is not a ton I can do, right? Like I can't play my Raptor Jesus, um, rip draw rat. No, what was the rampaging Uh, for died for your sins. The least you can do is remember his name. (laughs) No, I don't rem- I don't want to remember his name. <laughs> but I mean, but you'd be playing that main deck anyway, so it's like you know, there's nothing you you can't side in more burn because you're already maxed out on burn. You can't side in more card draw because you don't have any room for it. You can side out creatures, I guess, but then like what are you doing to your opponent? So there's like the sideboard is really you know, very it's not very good compared to the main deck. Um, and you're also limited is- to being one color, right? Which leaves mm-hmm. you uh, uh, significantly less options. So, like things you'll see in the sideboard for this deck are things like um, Act of Treason, uh, maybe a treasure map where they're just going to try to draw more cards than you are. Fiery Cannonade, so they can do a sweeper against another deck. Like these are just like not particularly good cards for that deck. Could, like imagine they had another color in there. They could have enchantment removal. You know, they could have access to some life gain of their own for the mirror. But like they, they're just not able to do that because they're a single color deck. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you look at a deck like Turbo Fog and a Turbo Fog deck or a Nexus deck um, built around uh, Wilderness Reclamation is just going to fold to any kind of enchantment removal out of the sideboard and a reasonable draw from their opponent. I mean, how many times did you play Cindervine today against the Nexus opponent and just have them fold? Yeah, they would usually concede on the spot, uh, which was ridiculously satisfying. And when I was playing a Sultai list, which we'll talk about Sultai in a moment, um, it was really nice to resolve Unmoored Ego and just take whatever you wanted. Usually that was Teferi. Like, you can have all the turns you want. You're not winning. Yeah, take out their only win con and then have them loop forever and get banned for two hours. Yeah, sounds good. that seems like a great thing to do, but that just shows like the difference between best of one and best of three and why best of one feels so narrow. Like there's only a couple of decks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just because a lot of these decks are only good after sideboarding against certain matchups. Um, so 
Well, that's also a decision when you play one of those narrow decks in best mm-hmm. of three, is you're thinking, I'm probably going to win game one because my deck is so narrow that my opponent is not going to be prepared for it. And then I need to get lucky in one of the other two games. So if you think you can get a 70% game one win rate with Mono Red, for example, and then be 40% in the next two, it's a very reasonable choice for a best of three tournament. Because like if you're probably going to win game one and then just kind of cross your fingers for the next two, and by that I mean you've got numbers to back it up and kind of believe that you can actually pull that off, then that, that makes something like Mono Red or Bant Nexus a, a, a very solid choice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, use that information as you will, but that should be, you know, deciding between best of one and best of three. You can't just necessarily take a best of three deck and play best of one, and we see that a lot, right? Like you can't just run Mono Blue sometimes, Um you can't just take a mono through mono blue best of three deck and run it best of one. You're going to have to tweak it and adjust it, I think, to, to fit that meta and, and vice versa, right? So if you're going to run your, your mono red best of one deck in a best of three, you're going to really have to think about your sideboard because you need to be, you know, you need to have a, a very good, a very good matchup in match one, but also have the ability that the way to get lucky in games two and three so that you can actually take the match down. I mean, it's the same way that you can't take your standard deck to a modern tournament and expect to do particularly well with it. They're different formats. And I I would argue that best of one is definitely a different format. Uh, And that, like, if you're new to the idea of sideboarded constructed, you're going to play more games of sideboarded magic than you are main deck magic. So your sideboard is actually more important than your main deck in, in... many ways of thinking about it, right? You're you're always going to play one main deck match, and then sometimes you're going to play two sideboard matches, but you're always going to play one sideboard match, which means like you're going to play more games with your sideboard than you are with your main deck. Yeah, exactly. I would estimate like, you know, just two and a half games per match mm-hmm. where one and a half games are sideboarded, right? And it just makes sense to look at it that way. So so you're absolutely right. Like you really got to think about your 60, but your, your extra 50 and your full 75 is what, is what you should be considering when you when you make your deck. So, um, and maybe we'll do an episode on sideboarding. Maybe I'll find a sideboard expert or something like that to come on the podcast one of these days. I am not a sideboard expert, but what I can do is I can read, and I can search the internet. And there are lots of resources out there of people that put together sideboard guides for a deck. They put together sideboards just in their entirety. You know, different sideboards for different metas, and you can go in there and you can read. And you can say, okay, against mono red, I have to do this. Against mono blue, I have to do this. And then from there, you can start to learn and start tweaking your own sideboard. Fair enough. Yeah. So. Now, before we get through standard, we do need to talk about the Boogeyman. What is the Boogeyman? Soltai Midrange. Yeah. It, it's less of a deck in best of one from what I've seen. But again, it, it might just be where I am in the ladder. I don't think um, that's the case. I think the linear nature of best of one squeezes out midrange decks. Because a mid-range deck's plan is I'm going to try to get close to 50% main deck and then my sideboard cards are going to crush you. So again, without access to that sideboard, you really can't play a mid-range deck. You could play a pre-sideboarded version to beat aggro and then if you bump into Turbo Fog, like you just can't win. And same, same, it works the other way too. Like I could play a pre-sideboarded version to get Turbo Fog, but like, what am I doing with Unmoored Ego against Mono Red? I mean, I guess you're taking their uh, light up the stage, <laughs> their risk factors. Yeah, like, chain rulers. But like, you're you're right. Like, it's not. It doesn't have near of an impact as it does in in a in a control matchup, for example. Yeah. So the the, the big thing here is Hydroid Crisis, like. Uh, 
this is just the best mid-range card that exists. You can ramp to it, but you don't have to. You just have to put it in a deck that can resolve it, and it's going to be good. Uh, and it, it is eventually what has led me to, like, I, I had a lot of fun brewing Jund, but I think I'm going to have to play a deck with Hydroid Crisis in it if if I want to, like, climb this ladder in a best-of-three environment. Because the card's just too good. Yeah, I don't I don't think you're wrong. Um, I got the privilege of casting it in Limited the other day, and... Um... Anywhere on the curve you cast it is it is fantastic, um, with the exception of, of X equals 1. Anything turn 4 or later, and you're pretty happy to cast it. Um, it it's just backbreaking. It gets, you from, it gets you to parity when you're behind on resources. Not necessarily on board, but sometimes it does. It can buy you a turn or two from just the life gain alone. Um, you know, control has a terrible time against it because you're, you get it on cast, if I remember correctly, and mm-hmm. you're getting... Like they're using a resource to remove your creature, and you're still getting the cards off of it. It's just an it's just an insane card. I have no idea. I mean, I'm very glad it's a mythic, obviously, so you don't see them limited. But um, this will be a card. This is like Teferi. Um, this this will be a card that will play be played until the end of time in standard um, until rotation, I guess, two years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I look forward. Like if you're looking for a card to craft with your mythic wild cards, this is probably your best option right now. Yeah, I I can't imagine there's not going to be a deck featuring this for as long as it's standard legal. Unless it loses all support, but it's going to have all the land support. Like, the lands rotate with it, basically, so you're going to have good lands for it. Um, And, you know, I mean, blue-green might not be a thing, but it's been a thing for since Ixalan and various combinations of, of styles of decks, right? Merfolk and things like that. So you have to assume that it's going to be there. And if we end up going to, like, a like a concept Tarkir plane or something like that in the next couple of sets, then you're all, you're going to have lands there and you're going to have support for it there in the Sultai colors. So um, I think the future is good for Krasis and I kind of wish I hadn't spent all my mythic wild cards on history Benalias now because I could be playing a Krasis deck right now. <laughs> Get you some Krasi. They're really good. So my, my experience and, and what I had a lot of fun doing was a- after I got to diamond, I was like, let's have some fun with some decks and I tried a Sultai brew uh, that Daniel from the stream, Not Gopher, came up with, who has recently begun streaming as well. I'd encourage you to check him out uh, if you're looking for new streamers to watch. Um, I tried Bant Nexus because I wanted to see how that did. I'd mentioned I'd already played with my tokens deck some, uh, so Naya tokens, and it, it honestly still worked. Uh, it wasn't fantastic, but it still worked. And then after trying those, I was like, Let's try to brew a little bit, which I hadn't done in a long time. And I decided I wanted to bring Modern Jund into Standard. And there's a lot of players that were playing a deck they called Jund. But what they really meant was, I have a deck that has green, black, and red cards in it. And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring the play style of the modern deck Jund into MTG Arena and Standard. And I thought the most important thing about that was copying the casting cost of the spells and getting as close to possible as the effect as I could. So, for example, Drillbit is actually closer to what Thoughtseize is than Duress. But Drillbit is three mana unless you're attacking. And Duress is one mana. So I was main decking Duresses and surprisingly okay with it. I think we should back up for the people that maybe knew and maybe haven't played Modern before, but Jund Modern, what what style of deck is it? So the the idea with this deck, it it is the definitive mid-range deck in Modern. 
The difference is Modern is a very fast format, so it's looking to have plays on turn 1, 2, and 3, and ideally what you want to do is spend your turn 1 either making your opponent discard a card with some sort of discard. In in Modern, we would use Inquisition of Kozilek and Thoughtseize. In the version I made, we were using Divest and Duress. Ideally, on turn 2, you play some sort of creature that will both present a clock to your opponent by being able to attack and block, as well as give you some additional value. So either it's just a huge creature, or it's a creature that does something. Think of cards like Tarmogoyf and Dark Confidant. And then from there, you're looking to kind of just answer every threat that your opponent presents while chipping away with these small creatures, and then resolve a Planeswalker to close out the game. Perfect. So ripping your ripping your opponent's hand apart and then staying ahead on board and getting value out of your creatures. So that was your goal in standard Jund. Mm-hmm. And okay. I actually got a list together that was pretty good. There, and, and I do think this is a valid deck. Um, I was able to replace a lot of pieces of the Jund deck with standard cards and was surprised at how well I did with it. Um, tracking it through the whole process, it was about a 50% win rate. But I, I'm using MTGO Pro Tracker at David's insistence, and he's right, it's actually a really neat tool, and I would encourage all of you guys to start using this. I didn't realize that if I just changed the deck and didn't make a new deck, it wouldn't change the the stats based on different iterations of it. So like the final version, I don't have like separate stats for that. I think it was higher than 50%, but I'm not sure where. It is still tracking that like all of the iterations were very good against Mono Red, Mono Blue, and Esper, and lost to Soltai, which is the problem, right? Like uh, Soltai is the boogeyman. If Soltai is ever not super popular, or if there's a tournament where you're expecting a lot of Mono Blue, Mono Red, or Esper, Jun's actually a really good thing to pick. Cards that surprised me at how good they were here. Uh, number one was the Direfleet Daredevil. A lot of people had forgotten about this card, and I just had a blast with it. Uh, it's one in a red for a pirate with first strike. When it enters the battlefield, exile target instant or sorcery from an opponent's graveyard. You can cast it this turn and spend mana as if it were any color. So, like, I initially put this in my two-drop slot and then realized that it actually goes in the four-drop slot because so often you're just slamming it and using your opponent's Thought Scour against them, or slamming it and using a Lightning Strike, or turn three slamming it and using it a Shock. It It's not wonderful against Mono Blue, because it's often just, you know, you're getting an Opt or something out of it. I have used it to get a Counterspell from Mono Blue and then hold it while I made an attack. Uh, and once I used it to get a Dive Down and then be able to attack into stuff and, and save it if they had blocked... Um, so like it, it had some flexibility there, but it's very good against red, uh, very good against Esper. Like it just kind of wrecked Esper because like they thought scour me and see a duress and this. It's like, what do you take? Th- they kind of had to take this and then I could duress them, get their mortify, top deck this guy later and have so many options. I think one of the more interesting plays that I saw with the the dare the daredevil or the yeah daredevil right direfleet daredevil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm terrible with names. Um, was resolving it and then exiling your opponent's chemistry's insight without casting it because you didn't have the mana to do it. And I thought that was really cool because you denied your opponent a resource even though you didn't have the mana to spend on it. And I thought that was really neat. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do with it. Um, I was also happy with what I ended up calling Squadron Goyf, which was the Growth Chamber Guardian. Uh, Two mana, two, two, adapts for two and a green. Uh, turns into a 4-4, four, four, and you can go get another one out of your deck. 
it, this card's pretty powerful, and I think the the Sultai deck plays this as well, if I remember correctly, right? Most of them do not. The version oh, really? that I was running did. Okay, I've I've run into it a few times. Maybe it's just uh, maybe it's just blue green Simic colors that that runs it. But the um, the upside of this obviously is it gives you redundant threats that have to be answered. A four four is kind of insane most of the time in standard, and mm-hmm. um, play it plays around. It plays under counter spells. You stick it on turn two, and then like evolve it on turn three or adapt it on turn three and you know your control opponent has to do something about it then Mm -hmm. um and uh and i like that denying your opponent the ability to use their mana effectively i think is really important yeah i think for the the soul tide decks it's basically do you want to run these or do you want to run an explorer package with a wild growth walker and you've kind of got to decide which direction to go i the ones that i've seen playing the growth chamber guardian are often also running Incubation Druid and Hadana's Climb because you can put a counter on either of them with the Hadana's Climb and get the effect without actually having to adapt it and then get you to a flipped Hadana's Climb pretty quickly. Uh, but I, I don't think that's a main version. Most of the main versions are still running the, the Explore package. Interesting. I do like that the Explore package is still out there. So you had a couple of other interesting kind of creatures and, and some that you flipped back and forth on so you were running the uh the the dryad the one three the green seeker dryad green seeker dryad the one that looks at the top of your library and draws it if it's a land um what were your thoughts on that card and and what ended up happening there so it's a really good value card which is certainly jund in spirit and i was relating it to dark confidant uh, which is two and a one and draws an extra card every turn you take damage equal to that card's converted mana cost And I recognize that part of what made Dark Confidant good is that it's drawing extra cards. The other part of what made it good is it's attacking for two while it's doing that. And Daisy was never able to attack. Like, she's a 1-3, so even if you do attack, it's not dealing that much damage. And if you attack with it, you're not drawing the card. It also wasn't consistent card draw. We did interestingly math it out and determined that if you want to draw a spell... Um, you should use Daisy in your upkeep, and if you want to draw a land, you should do it during your main phase, which was kind of cool to find all of that out. Um, that'll very rarely come up unless we go back to corset drafting, because I think that's the only place the card's playable. Uh, but I eventually came down to Merfolk Branchwalker, even without another Explore package, is just better. Now, obviously you're not consistently getting the cards each and every turn, but you either draw a card or you get a little bit of selection in the 3-2, and both of those were just better than the 1-3 body, even with sustained card draw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting discussion that we had over that is like, you know, the, the Green Seeker seemed really slow and inconsistent. And the 3-2, while also slow and inconsistent sometimes, um, gave you gave you a clock or gave you a blocker or something like that. And I thought that was really interesting that we came to that conclusion. So mm-hmm. that was a that was a chat interaction win on that one, I think. For sure. Now, what about your your big drop spots, like your actual finishers and powerhouses? Now, we've got a couple of those, but I also wanted to mention Bedevil. In the final version of this deck, I was running three Bedevils, and it was fantastic. Just being able to reach out and kill anything, Planeswalkers, creatures, didn't matter. Uh, it was just, it always felt good to have one of those in my hand. I initially resisted it because I thought it was going to be difficult to cast, and I was playing Fight Fire with Fire, and I realized that I never kicked the fight fire with fire. All I ever did with it was that that I couldn't have done with some other card was kill a Lyra. I was like, the mana's actually not that bad. I can play a Bedevil. And once I put it in there, I was just super happy with it. Um, but the, the two big ones here, 
Um, the, the final version ended up playing two Rekindling Phoenixes, uh, which is just a hard-to-deal-with four-drop, two Vivian Reeds, uh, which is an excellent answer to a lot of the threats in the format, as many of them are flying, uh, and many of them are enchantment-based. Like, White is using enchantment-based removal, so you'll get something back. Uh, Turbo Fog and, and other decks like that are using you know various enchantments to try to control the board. I've sniped Tadana's Climbs with it. I've got Search for Ascantas before they flipped. Uh, as well as just played it and killed a Drake or a Niv-Mizzet or a Nicol Bolas. Uh, and then again, drawing cards is awesome. And then Angrath uh, was actually really nice. When I was able to stick this against a control player, which you could do because, again, you're main decking four duresses, you can strip a counterspell and then land it the next turn, they would usually just scoop after an activation or two when they realized they're not going to be able to deal with this and I'm just going to have them discard every card that they draw. Now, they could top deck Teferi and tuck it, but again, if you could answer the Teferi relatively quickly, you could start the whole chain over again. And they kind of had to have that pretty quick. It was also a decent answer against some creatures. Interestingly, it could take a crisis, hit them for a lot of damage, and then kill it. But that ended up being the downfall for me wanting to play this deck consistently. Is like, so what? They still drew three cards and gained three life. So like, if I hit them with a 6-6 six, six crisis, I really just did three damage. And the cards that they drew are probably going to be able to deal with a one loyalty planeswalker. And then I won't be able to get any additional value out of him. Uh, so like the whole idea of Jund and Modern is one for oneing with your opponent while you're stripping their hand. And it, it worked great against every deck that wasn't resolving, you know, a 6-6 six, six flyer that drew them three cards. Once you get to that scenario, it's like, I can't actually keep one for oneing with this. Uh, and I, I wasn't running, like I was running two Devests in the main, and I, you just couldn't strip them. Because even if you did, they've got fine finality in those decks. They're just going to draw them again. Like, you, you're going to have to deal with the crisis multiple times. It really needed to be exiled. And like, you could fool around with something like Vraska's Contempt, but it's so expensive in a, in a deck that's wanting to have, inter, like, whose main focus is, I want to have interaction on turn one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting that, like, you look at, like, all of the decks that are out there, and they all seem to have some kind of card draw engine, with the exception of maybe Mono White. And, like, Mono Blue has a big flyer that draws a bunch of cards because it's loaded up with Curious Obsessions. Mm-hmm. And there's Thief of Sanity in in the, the blue-black, you know, Grixis decks and things like that. Play and Sultai. Well. And Sultai play it as well. Um, it's just, it, there's interesting, there's all these flyers that just draw a bunch of cards or gain a bunch of card advantage, and here you are trying to one for one, for one with your opponent. And surprise with, with very little card draw on your deck. True, but honestly, the Crisis was the only one that was a problem. Like, mm. I, I had the joy of my opponent tapping out for Thief of Sanity and getting to slam Angrath, take it, hit them, kill it, and draw a card from their deck. Like, I didn't care about Thief of Sanity because there's so many cards in this deck that answer it. And then Mono Blue, again, I, I I only had two losses to Mono Blue. One of them was to Alexander Hain, so I don't think that one counts. But like, I, honestly, the, the, the reason they're scary is because most decks don't have anything to do on turn one. This one had six discard spells and four Shivan Fires. Like, I had as many one-drops as they did. And they would confidently play their turn one, you know, Siren or Terramander, knowing that there's nothing I can do about it. And I'd just untap and shiv and fire it and not care. For a while, I was playing Deadweight. At that point, I, I had so much stuff against that deck that, like, I was ridiculously favored against them. And then I could just duress the dive down away. 
then there were plenty of times I had an opponent. Oh, this is fun. I'd, I'd play, uh, untapped red source on turn one when I'm on the play and shock myself. And they'd still play out their dude. I'd be like, cool, bolt it. And then I'd untap and duress them and see a hand with curious obsession and no more lands. Be like, <laughs> I know what your plan was and it's not going to work. And it, usually as soon as that duress resolved, they just scooped. Like, I'd see the hand, I'd take the card and, you know, they'd draw their card and be done. That's amazing. We should wrap it up, I think, with, well, two things I want to talk to you about. One is the, the mana base. So it seemed to me that the mana base was a bit of a problem with this deck where you were playing, obviously, enough shocks and, and check lands so that you could have a mana base, but you were only playing one or two basics, so the odds that you were playing a tap land or a shock land on turn one were pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that play out? In a deck where you want to be duressing on turn one, how, how did you find that? I actually found it, it reasonable to expect to be able to cast either a Shock variant or a Thoughtseize variant on turn one. That actually wasn't much of a problem. It did come up sometimes where you had a handful of buddy lands, uh, but not that often. The original version I was running played a Memorial to War and a Memorial to Folly and ended up just cutting those for a Swamp uh, and a Mountain. It gave me something to get if I got settled or if I got an Assassin's Trophy played against me and just having additional untapped sources helped. I chose those two colors because even though like the bulk of my creature base was green, those were the ones that I really wanted untapped early. And that really seemed to smooth things out. Uh, I made sure all of the shocks, at least as many as I could, would give me access to either black or red. So I, I didn't have any trouble with that. It's just this deck, if you're playing it in standard, you're probably going to start at 16 life because you're going to have to shock yourselves a couple times and that that was a problem against mono red uh, but once we went through several iterations and got the death or scavengers in the main mono red wasn't actually much of a problem all right and the other thing i want to talk to you about are the the, the card nicknames mm-hmm. so squadron goif was up there for number one i think mm-hmm. um what are, what are some other good nicknames that you had in the deck for uh for your your role players that fit the uh the jund life curve from modern well let, let me pull up the uh imager file and and share some of the fun ones so dead weight was obviously fatal push obviously divest was inquisition of kozilek duress was thought shivan fire is also lightning bolt uh, Direfleet Daredevil was Snatchcaster Mage. I like that one. That one's pretty good. Dryad Greenseeker was Dirt Confidant. Oh, that that one's also good, actually. I want to know who came... Did you come up with that one, or did somebody from your chat come up with that one? Zombub, who, honestly, I believe his calling is really in comedy. Yeah, he, he does come up with some fantastic things. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, and then I think those were all the good ones. Like, I referred to the Kindling, Rekindling Phoenix as Bloodbraid Elf... And then Vivian was the beauty and Angrath was the beast. I like that one. And then there was a uh, scavenging or death gore ooze or scavenging. <laughs> death I, gore, it would, I called it scavenging kitchen scavenger. I called it kitchen ooze. Kitchen ooze. Right. That's also very good. In in, in uh, memory of kitchen finks out of the sideboard. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, it was interesting to watch your rise and fall with the deck. <laughs> I think I wanted I wanted to mention that one. So, um, you know, I've mentioned this before where like not everybody can brew a deck and not every deck that is brewed is going to be like a pro tour top eight deck. Um, I, I think it, I think there's a very small number of people in this world that can brew and brew well. 
right? Mm-hmm. Anybody can slap a deck together. Um, anybody can take a deck that exists and, and tweak it. But I think there's a very few, very few people that can actually come up with a revolutionary deck, you know, that we're talking like a fresh 60. And your approach to this was, was very interesting. And it was kind of neat to see you go from, I think we have something here. This is really fun. I'm winning a couple of games. I'm breaking the format. Oh my God, I can't win with this deck. I'm never going to win again. Let's change most of the deck. Okay, life sucks. What am I doing now? I Maybe I should just play mono red. And then going back and tweaking it some more and coming back to it. And finally ending on a version that didn't necessarily break standard, but certainly was something that was fun and in the spirit and, and you know, fit the goals that you had set out and was something that could actually win a game. Time will tell whether it will actually win, you know, 55% of its games or 58% of its games. But it was kind of interesting to go through that life cycle with you um, in a very short amount of time. I believe the declaration of We Broke Standard was yesterday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And this and this morning, the deck was 20 cards different <laughs> than where it was the day before. I, I don't actually think it was 20. I think it was about nine cards that I shifted. Really? I thought it was more than that because you cut two lands and went to 22 lands. And you cut all your planes. Oh, no, no. You, you tuned in at a weird time because, like, <laughs> so the, the the actual deck. So that they started with this theory of what you should be doing is playing an aggressive version of Jund. So I was like, okay, let's build that and see what that's like. And I built that and played a couple games. It was like, I don't like this. This is not good. Let's just accept that, like, the the Snatchcaster Mage is a four drop, not a two drop, and go back and retool the original deck. And when we did that and took out the Dark Confidants for Branch Walkers and the Fight Fires with Fires and the Lava Coils for Bedevil, um, I also ended up cutting um, the Twilight Prophets and swapping in a couple separate cards there. And that's where I think we actually ended up with something that was quite good and playable. At at the end of the day, though, I I think I built a good deck. And if the card uh, Hydroid Crisis had not been printed... I think it would be exceptionally viable, but that's that's the one thing I just couldn't handle. I tried everything to be able to beat that card in these colors, and just no, nothing could, could could legitimately handle it. So then if you have to suck it up and play the, the Hydroid Crisis, what are you going to play? Um, what kind of shell are you going to play around it, do you think? I've, I've tried some with Daniel's version that was playing the um, Squadron Goyfs. But I think I actually like the Explore package, not necessarily because there's so much mono red and mono blue in the best of three cues, but just because you're able to, to generate value off of the, the green Explore creatures um, relatively consistently. And if you hit the Wild Growth Walker, it can actually grow big enough to be a threat. Like you're kind of making that into a weird sort of Tarmogoyf. I may have mm-hmm. to go back to Jun now and like run an Explore package. Jund Explorer. Jund Explorer. Well, your other alternative, though, is to take Sultai and turn it into Jund. You know, that's an interesting concept, and some people have referenced that as a possibility. Um, But I I think the core of the Sultai deck and what actually makes it so good is that it's not looking to do what modern Jund did. It's not looking to have that much interaction. It's looking to kind of just slam value creatures and... Like it can actually have aggressive draws and just run you over with them if you're not able to interact with it, and it doesn't actually have that much interaction of its own. Like it ends up playing maybe five removal spells main deck in most mm-hmm. cases, and that's just not that many. Like e- even mid range, most mid range decks are playing more than that. 
uh, because it's just packed with creatures and it has to play the Llanowar elves to ramp into the crisis. Well, I mean, hear me out here though, right? Like, what if, what if you just cut the red and brought in the the blue, and you know, try to keep it in the same idea, same same style. So, like, turn one, rip apart their hand. Turn turn two, play your your squadron goyf. Turn three, I don't know what you fit in the bedevil spot, and then from there, you're just running crisis on turn two, or, um, you know, whatever else you're running on turn four, your planeswalkers and things like that. Because you can you can keep a lot of the things. The only thing you can't really run that I think would you would miss is the bedevil and the Angrath. Angrath was a big part of what made that work. Yeah, I guess so. Hey, because you're constantly putting the pressure on them to make them discard. Yeah, I don't know. It was interesting. I, I look forward to it though. I, I like I, said, I finally picked up a crisis, so I'm looking forward to maybe being able to build the deck as a free to play player. Free to play player. I use in air quotes. Yeah, I'm I'm going in to look at it now and see what we would lose from red. We'd lose Snatchcaster Mage too, uh, which was pretty dang good. I guess we would get Thief of Sanity, which is relatively close to that. Yeah, like you're still getting the same type of value off of it. Um and and you have to remember that you're playing Crisis on four instead of Snatchcaster Mage on four. Mm-hmm. So like you're getting you're getting value there, right? So it's almost like you're just looking for the cards that give you the most value. Um, I mean, I, I wish you hadn't said this because I was all ready to play a crisis deck, and now I'm like, you know what? We could cut the Phoenix and play the Twilight Prophets. I I can play the Crisis over Angrath. Oh, damn it, Dave! Here I was, ready to settle into a meta deck. Here's what, what you what should do. What can I do, do about should... Shivan Fire? Uh, cast downs, dead weights. Cast down could work. I. I don't want to interrupt your plans because you have a plan to get to Mythic. You should do that. When you're done, maybe there's a deck there. Because when I watched, like, dressing your opponent two turns in a row... It's brutal, isn't it? It's it's brutal against most decks. Yeah, it was kind of surprising. And, like, the other thing I liked about the Branch Walkers once I added them in is sometimes you'd see a duress on top and be like, Nah, I'm good. <laughs> I don't need this anymore. I don't need this. It, it would hurt to lose Bedevil, but I mean, I mean, you could play Murder. You most absolutely of, most. It of doesn't the time, kill Planeswalkers. Yeah, but most of the time, I wasn't killing a Planeswalker. Like you might not have to play the Elves, and if your Elf package is not there, then I think you have the room for the discard. But I am not a brewer. I'm putting my hands up in the air. You know, this is not my expertise. Um, I'm all for taking a meta deck and just playing it and getting to your mythic. Uh, maybe we'll fool around with it some in the morning. Tomorrow's a new day, an exciting day, and I really did enjoy the discard package. So uh, if you ruin my morning, I'm I'm blaming you. It's all your fault. No. One last thing. Uh, Baby Vraska out of the sideboard was actually quite nice. All right, you're going to have to sell me on Baby Vraska because uh, I have gone away from Baby Vraska in... Well, I mean, I haven't played Golgari in forever, but I was pretty off it near the end of, of the previous standard. So what changed? So what changed is there's there's relevant things that she comes into play and kills from nearly every meta deck. And in addition, the 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 the, the control decks have a really hard time answering her. Uh, and her ultimate comes super fast. 
So, like, even if you're not, like, sacrificing anything and drawing the cards, just ticking her up is putting them on a serious clock because they're relying as Mortify on one of their main removal spells and it doesn't target Planeswalkers. So, like, they have to have a Contempt. At most, they're playing four, and most of them, like, don't have that many against this particular deck because they would need to answer things a lot quicker than Braska's Contempt. So, like, just resolving it against one of these Esper decks and ticking it up a couple times, they're basically dead. Uh, and then, then, like, again, it's one of those things where, like, if you top deck it with seven lands in play, because, like, the, the Jun deck that I was playing played 24 lands, but didn't have anything over five. So, like, if I drew it and had seven lands in play, you're just like, heck yeah, I'm drawing two cards while I'm threatening to ultimate a Planeswalker that will kill you. Like, that was pretty significant. You know, and there were times where my, you know, I've got mono blue down and the only thing I need to do is be able to kill a Jun. It, it can do that. It's not degenerate, but it can do it. Do you see what I did there? I did see what you did there, Degenerate. Yeah. Well played. Okay. Well, I look forward to your deck building adventures over the next week. I I can't wait to see what kind of brews you come up with and going through the cycle of denial and acceptance in in your deck (laughs) quality and strength. The next time you break standard, though, maybe don't pronounce it so quickly. Give us an opportunity to verify with data first. That was a little bit of hyperbole and a little bit of having fun. It was a little bit. It was great, though. But I really appreciate it. I, I do think the thing that I learned is also, like, after you've brewed a deck and played with it, don't fall so in love with your own creation that you're not just playing a bad version of something else. Because I, I do think right now, if you're trying to do a mid-range value deck, it needs to have Hydroid Crisis in it. If that card didn't exist, the deck that I built would probably be a meta deck right now, and someone else probably would have found it before I did. Uh, but with Crisis in print... It, you either need to be playing a deck that's going a, a completely different r- route and looking to ignore it by kill your opponent quickly, aka aggro, or combo them out with something like Bant Nexus. Because if you're looking to do value creatures and you're not playing a creature that gains you life and draws you cards, <laughs> you're kind of doing it wrong. Kind of doing it wrong. But you you can finish out the podcast. I'm going to start putting together this John Soltai list. Okay, sweet. Um... We talked a little bit earlier about uh, MTG Tracker Pro, um, so it took me a while to convince you to to install it and use it. Um, so if, you, if anybody out there is interested in it, you can just Google MTG, MTG Tracker Pro. Um, and what it is, just a piece of software that plugs in and looks at your arena logs perfectly legit. Um, it's not sanctioned by Watsi, but it's also not banned by Watsi, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, it's just reading essentially publicly available information or information that's available on your computer in the log files to to read information about your games and about your wins and about your collection and things like that. Um, and I convinced you to install it so that we could get some data on your matches and, and less on your matches and more the meta, the, the decks that you were playing against. And um, and I thought it was interesting to track, you know, what decks you were playing against with your, with your brew, but also what decks you were kind of crushing. Mm-hmm. And even though it was a small sample size, so we talked about this on your stream, but, you know, it was mentioned that, like, you know, good data is king, and, and really what that meant was, like, enough data to understand, you know, what's going on is king. And you told me a story about how, you know, you had to sell a thousand things in order to get a sale, and you learned that over time that, you know, it was volume, you know, not 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 small sample sizes, not small streaks that really got you through and, and made sure that you sold your things. What, what I think we're looking for, because we can't play a thousand games of Magic between us in a week, that's just impossible, but what you're looking for with MTG Tracker is 
small patterns in data, things that you can find, anomalies in your data, in, in your matchups in particular. So I mentioned my, my mono white deck from earlier and how it was crushing mono red. You know, that, that's not something that I would necessarily know for sure unless I was using a tracker, unless I was tracking every single game that I was playing because, you know, I might win three games in a row and think I'm on top of the world and then I forget the five that I lost yesterday here and there that I didn't play five in a row. And you can't really see that information unless you have it presented to you or you're collecting it yourself. So even if you're collecting a small amount of data with this, you know, getting information such as, you know, I'm seven and three against mono red, I probably have a pretty good matchup. Even if it's a small sample size, you know, your confidence interval might be higher than you would like. You can still see these patterns and you can be confident and and know that you have game against these decks. And then maybe you can tweak your sideboard to play against the decks that you kind of suck against. And so... You know, I encourage people out there either use this tool or, or track your games, um, you know, whip up a spreadsheet and do that. But having just the numbers will give you more information that you can get just by trying to pay attention to your wins and losses. It, it honestly and I resisted this for a while because I'm lazy and this is like a lazy man's tracking tool. You literally just boot it up, leave it alone and it's tracking all the information and what it's doing for me is essentially the same thing that testing with you and Ashley did for the Twitch Rivals tournament, where I initially thought that my matchup versus Golgari was not very good, and I eventually found out that it was, and eventually recognized what cards mattered in that matchup, and that that's why I was able to do so good in, in that tournament, and specifically with the deck that I'd kind of tweaked for that tournament. So it's like, it, it it's almost like you're testing while you're playing and just getting a huge view of it. The only thing I would recommend is if you're you're t- tuning a deck or building your own deck is save them as different deck names. Like I wish I had done that so I could see what all these different iterations of Jun did instead of get this roughly 50% because you you mentioned we you tuned in while we were doing that aggro Jun version and it was terrible. I don't think it won a single game much less a match. Uh, so all of those results were lumped in with my Jun deck because I, I didn't bother renaming them. I just kind of tweaked it and then saved it and then rebuilt it and saved it. So do that. But yeah, I definitely track your stuff. Like it, good data is king. Any data can be useful. Just remember to put the amount of value on it that it's worth, right? Like if you played five games with a deck and you won all five, maybe you're on to something but, you know, it's only five games. Yeah, exactly. And the interesting thing is, too, is that, you know, I've, I've read stories about pros that will sit down and test a deck, test a matchup 10 times and know, you know, exactly what the matchup is after those 10 times. And you'll say to yourself, well, that's such a small sample size. Like, you know, how, how can that be? And the reason is obviously because they have enough experience with it, but you can just get a feel for those matchups and the numbers behind the scenes just validate those feelings. Mm -hmm. So I'll sit down against mono red and I'm like, man, for some reason, this matchup feels real good. And then I'll go look at my numbers and see, oh yeah, like I'm eight and three against them in my last 11. I'm validated now. I understand. So there's, it's not just the numbers. It's, it's the feeling and the interaction and the experience they're getting with that. You don't have to play a thousand games of the deck to know if it's good or not. Right, you can probably get that feeling after fifty, um, you know, even though it's a small sample size. So, Agreed. We're, not, we're not looking, we're not, we're not doing a political survey here. It doesn't have to be a sample size of a thousand with it, you know, plus or minus two percent, nineteen times out of twenty. That's not what we're looking for here. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and it, it has been useful, and I'm going to continue to use that uh, as I make this push for Mythic Top Eight. That is a scoreboard for me. I'm 
putting it on the board right there. One for Dave. The first one for Dave. No, I'm on a streak. I believe I've had a few this this month. <laughs> you have. I guess I guess it's February, so maybe last month. But all right. Well, I look forward to that. Uh, have fun on your vacation next week. Thank you, thank you. I will miss streaming and we'll miss you, but it'll be good to get away and spend some time with the misses. Uh, and I'll be back the week after for more podcasting and streaming awesomeness. Outstanding. I'm going to look to line up a guest for next week. I will tweet out about that if I do end up finding that. If not, we will catch you the week after. So. Maybe it's a vacation for everyone. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, once again, thanks to Face to Face Games for the host and all of the support. And Travis, where can they catch you streaming for the rest of the week? Uh, you can catch me tomorrow, uh, which will be February 8th, Friday, and Monday, February 11th at twitch.tv slash simulan. I'll then be gone for a week and back around the 19th. And I'm at twitch.tv slash dcivilian. That's D-S-A-V-I-L-L-I-A-N. And I'm at Twitter the same. You can also follow Men for Moto on Twitter. We're just at Men for Moto. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can also check out our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash Men for Moto. Once again, thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Adios.